Welcome back, listeners, to Open Questions, a podcast uh, me and my friend Ben are doing. My name is John McCullough. I'm Ben Gillen. Uh, we're grad students at USC, and we're doing this podcast and talking about math. And if you haven't heard our podcast before, what we do is one person explains a math concept, and the other one is blindfolded, so can't see the speaker, just like uh, you can't see the speaker. Ben is going to be blindfolded today. I'm going to be talking about uh, symplectic geometry, which is my area of research, and I think it's super cool, and I hope I can convey that. Uh, it's kind of hard to in a short time, but it's a very cool subject, so yeah. Let's see what we can get. Let's see what I can understand. Once again, I am a horrible geometer, so this yeah. is perfect. Yeah, and geometry is probably the worst thing to try to explain because it's so visual. <laughs> To somebody who's blindfolded or to somebody who's riding in their car. Or... But, but that's why we that's why it's one of our first episodes. That's why we're doing all these geometry episodes first, because yeah. we have a lot of belief in ourselves. Right. And also that's all I know is geometry. <laughs> so it might be the only things I talk about. And also because we're so skilled that we can do this so well, that you specifically, Jonathan, can explain this so well. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right, we'll try. It. All right. Pop on that that blindfold, I guess. It's going on. Here it yeah. goes. Okay. I can't see a thing. Talk to me about symplectic geometry. Okay, we're going to start at the beginning. And we're going to start with a mathematician named Hamilton and his contributions to classical mechanics. Back in the late 1800s, um, I think is when he was making math, basically. So you've got Newtonian mechanics. Okay, which is basically how objects move in space. If you throw an apple, it's going to follow some trajectory. And uh, the planets move in some trajectory as well. And everything follows a nice force equals mass times acceleration type of thing. We have a bunch of force vectors, which are like arrows in space that tell you where objects should move. Um, and that gives us some idea of motion, and it tells us how we can predict how things will move. Force fields. Yes, force fields, exactly. <laughs> Literally, fields of force, yeah. Right, and so those force fields, if you know the, the force field, you know the vectors of force, then you know uh, the acceleration, and you can figure out, given some initial position and some initial velocities, you can figure out where things are going to move. Are you saying that, like, if I push a ball it has now it has some force in it and it'll roll for a while yeah so you pushing is the force and um yeah exactly and if the initial position is some position and the initial velocity is zero your force is going to be equivalent to an acceleration on that uh, ball and so it'll move and then once we know that acceleration and the velocities and the position then we can predict how it's going to move and so there's a big thing predicting all this stuff. And it's one of the main things that motivates mathematics is celestial bodies and um, the movement of the planets and the movement of the stars and um, the movement of objects in space. And it's what led Newton to calculus and has motivated tons of math for most of its history. And so a big change happened 
in the 1800s from Newtonian mechanics to the, a reformulation of mechanics, Lagrangian and Hamiltonian mechanics. And this is a really cool reformulation, very similar to how optics works. It's kind of like uh, an analogy to optics, um, how light moves to how objects move. Now, there's a model in optics that explains the very mysterious thing that happens when you have a pencil in a glass of water and it looks bent. This is like refraction. So when you, when you shine light through some medium other than air, right? If light travels through air and then it hits some medium like water, it does this weird thing where it bends at an angle. Have you seen that before? Yeah, I know yeah. what you're talking about. The refraction of a pencil in a cup of water. Yeah. I know yeah. what you're talking about. Uh-huh. And so what's happening is the light is taking the path that minimizes the time it takes to reach uh, point B from point A. So it starts at point A. You shine it in a direction. It hits some medium in which it travels a different speed. Okay, so light in a vacuum travels the speed of light, obviously. Yeah. But light in other mediums travel uh, at a different speed. And so... How does the change in speed change the, the shortest path? Yeah, so uh, you can imagine this as, say you're trying to get from the top left corner of your field of vision. Like, just put a point in the top left call that A, and put a point in the bottom right, call that B, okay? And say you're in the sky at the top and you're like in the ocean at the bottom. And it, like it switches in the A's middle. A's in the sky, B's in the ocean. Yeah, yeah. And so if you just take the straight line from A to B, you're going to be going in air for a while and then you're going to be going in water for a while. Let's uh, clarify that light moves slower in water, mm -hmm. okay? So it's actually faster if to get from point A to point B. If you go in the air for a longer distance and then you angle a bit, you take a little turn and go down to B through a shorter distance of water. Well, oh, That's going to take less time. I've never understood refraction before, but that makes so much sense. That's yeah. crazy that yeah. that's what's happening. No, yeah. It's like if you're like the beam of light and say like you're facing a, a forest or something, a very heavy forest, and you're trying to get to some point uh, in the forest that's a bit like northwest or something, or, you know, like a bit at an angle to you. And then instead of going straight for it, you kind of travel where there's not a lot of forest first, and then you turn in to the forest, right? Yeah. So that's that bend. That's the angle that's happening. But the important thing is that it's a very weird model because it's not very physically... Like, the light's not choosing the path beforehand. The light doesn't know it's going to point B, right? It's just going in a direction, and then it kind of changes angles or something. And so this model of light travel and optics is the minimization of something, of a function, right? And in this time, it's the amount of time it takes to get from point A to point B. And that's like a very important concept. And so the, the analogy in mechanics um, is that instead of 
force vectors acting on objects and particles, we want to minimize a function. And it's called an action functional. Okay? And the path that minimizes this action functional is the path that the particle takes. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in the pushing the ball analogy, when I push the ball, it doesn't all of a sudden turn around and start coming towards me because that would require more energy functional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. Um, it would not be a stationary point of of this action functional and a stationary point meaning like a minimum or a maximum or a, or a saddle point basically yeah where the variation is zero this thing is called like the the calculus of variations or something if you want to look more into it but um you throw out a lot of terms like yes a lot I, of buzzwords a lot of buzzwords a lot of, buzzwords. Terms, a lot of um, jargon out here yeah it's but, getting smart if you haven't noticed <laughs> so but the importance is the shift, and particularly we care about we care about paths in uh, configuration space is what they call it, and it's basically you plot not just the position but also the velocities. Okay, so you're in some six-dimensional space if you have three position vectors. Okay, so. The evolution of a like system in time is like a path moving around in that six-dimensional space where you have position and velocity. Yeah, so you're in this six-dimensional space of position and velocities, x, y, z, and the velocities in the directions x, y, z. And a path in this 60 space would be a particle moving in our 3D space. And so there's many different paths that particle can take. And Lagrangian mechanics is talking about minimizing the, the action functional, which uh, explaining it would be, it's just the integral along this path of the kinetic energy minus the potential energy. So it's some it's some function on the important thing is it's a function uh, on energy and it spits out a number and you're trying to minimize this number just like you were trying to minimize the time it takes for light to travel from point A to point B. So for some reason this yeah. integral minimizing this integral is the same as describing like me pushing the ball and how yeah. the ball moves. Yeah, it's a reformulation and it's equivalent to Newtonian mechanics. Wow. You can derive one from the other and vice versa. And you're saying this, <laughs> instead of just using force equals mass times acceleration, yeah. Yeah. you're saying, no, 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 that's too easy. We need to go to six dimensions to really yeah. understand what's yeah. going on. Yeah, and so what's interesting, and I, it took me a little while to figure this out, but um, even though they're equivalent reformulations, Lagrangian mechanics is a mathematically more general structure. Um, and Hamiltonian mechanics is still mathematically more general. Um, so wait, are, you, are we talking about Lagrangian or Hamiltonian now? Well, Hamiltonian, eventually. But um, Lagrangian is the six-dimensional thing. Yeah. yeah, and Hamiltonian is six-dimensional as well. Um, 
but it's more it's a dualized thing is what they call it and it's yeah and you change it even a bit more and instead of um doing positions and velocities you're doing positions and momentum or how's momentum defined so momentum you can define momentum as just the mass times the velocity but in the math uh, it's more of a, it's dual to the velocities in that it's a, the velocity would be a vector, okay, just like force is a vector, you know, it's got direction and magnitude, Yep. but momentum in our shift to Hamiltonian mechanics can be thought of as a co-vector, which is a function, it's a little function you input and you output. You input vectors and you output a number. That's what a co-vector is. That's this whole dualizing thing. Oh, it's just some... Okay, so you're saying our six Lagrangian dimensions yeah. are three velocity vectors and three distance vectors? Yeah, position, yeah. Position uh -huh. vectors, uh -huh. thank you. And our Hamiltonian is three position vectors... And three numbers? Yeah, momentum three numbers? co vectors, you can think of them as. Co vectors, so you which plug, correspond to momentum. You plug in a, a velocity and you receive a, a number which corresponds to the momentum in that direction. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Yeah. And this. Co vectors, sorry to interrupt, but co vectors is a weird note thing to call this. It's like, <laughs> it's just a function, right? Um, yes. It's like the dot product is a co vector, right? Um, I well, guess it the, takes two vectors. Right, right. So if you have the dot product, but you always input a very a specific vector in the first slot, then that would be a co vector. Gotcha. Yeah. Right, because you put something in the second slot, that's one input vector, and you get out, um, uh, yeah. So just some function with a fancy name called a co-vector. And it's got to be linear, and, uh, but yeah, yeah. Um, sure, some, some function with some requirements. Yes, and, and the whole, the reason it's called a co-vector is because this dualization, it's, it's a more broad thing that happens a lot of times, and this is like a very standard way of doing it. So you get co a lot of stuff a lot of the time. And it's good to see the connections there. So what we have now is we have this six dimensional phase space, um, which is where the physics happens. And if we know how phase space evolves in time, then we know how everything moves, just like we did in Newtonian mechanics. And to be honest, Hamilton, who spent most of his life in an observatory in Ireland. He was the royal astronomer of Ireland, the, the top one, and he was at their observatory. Um, so he's obviously interested in optics because you need that for telescopes and stuff. Um, and so really he did this reformulation. Uh, it certainly helps in calculations, that's for sure. But also he just loved the analogy between optics and Hamiltonian mechanics. And um, it turned out to be really useful way later in the early 1900s. Like, uh, 
you know, half a century later or something. Wow. Um, because we needed Hamiltonian mechanics to get to quantum mechanics. The process to get from classical mechanics to quantum mechanics goes through this thing called quantization or something. And it goes through Hamiltonian mechanics. And the main guys who uh, came up with quantum mechanics, like Heisenberg and Dirac, they all have quotes talking about like how elegant and beautiful Hamilton's reformulation and analogy specifically with optics this was. So he just saw the connection between the two fields and said, these two things are really saying the same thing, but no one's really seen it yet. And he said, we have to take a more general mathematical look at this. We have to like step back and look at the forest instead of the trees. And these are the same thing. And they're in the same forest. Wow. Yeah. And so, and that's, and it wasn't useful as useful at the time. I mean, it was useful. And then it was even more useful later that he looked at the forest and quantum mechanics is kind of in that forest too. And you could see, and um, yeah. And Dirac like combined these two very specific formulations of quantum mechanics via like the quantization of Hamiltonian mechanics and made this more general picture of quantum mechanics that was, that's like used today, I would say. Yeah. So just kind of like a general, oh, and so I didn't even say why this has anything to do with symplectic geometry. (laughs) Yeah. Back to that. So the phase space in Hamiltonian mechanics, uh, it's called the cotangent bundle. And because we had tangent vectors, which was velocity, and then we had co-vectors, which was momentum, so it's the cotangent bundle because those velocity vectors were tangent to um, to the configuration space. But anyways, it's called the cotangent bundle, and this thing is a symplectic manifold. It's a symplectic surface. And what does that mean? Yeah, so um, a manifold is... A surface that locally looks flat. Um, smooth. Yes, smooth manifold. Um, and it's symplectic if it's got a symplectic form on it, which means uh, there's some way of measuring area on this thing, two-dimensional area, uh, and it satisfies some conditions. <clears throat> that have motivations in mechanics, non-degeneracy and closedness. The non-degeneracy allows you to, once you have a phase space uh, and a function, you put any smooth function on this phase space, then non-degeneracy allows you to get a unique vector field on that phase space. Okay. So is it so phase space is not some vector field it's not like a six dimensional space that i would think about it's it's these three dimensions that are just they're just numbers like what does that mean what is phase space yeah so a phase space let me give you an example the the double pendulum say okay this has Two degrees of freedom. Where you hang one pendulum from a second pendulum. Yes. Yeah. So a string and then some like ball and then a string and then another ball or some weight or something. So double pendulum. And um, 
you can figure out what state this pendulum is in based on two pieces of information, uh, just the two angles. So the first pendulum can be at any angle, zero to two pi, right? And then after you determine what that angle is, the second pendulum can be at some angle of, of two pi, uh, zero to two pi, uh, where the center is that weight of the first pendulum, okay? Um, so this thing, if you remember from the first episode, um, we're gonna have the configuration space, the possibilities of those two angles is gonna be zero to two pi times zero to two pi, right? Mm -hmm. But uh, the two pi and the zero are the same, right? So this is like a circle times a circle. When we say circle times a circle, we don't literally mean multiply <clears throat> them together, we just mean that like they're two dimensions, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like uh, like you, don't multiply r, the real numbers, times the real numbers, but you do r cross r, and you get the two-dimensional plane. So, like, when you do s1 cross s1, you get the, the donut. Yep. Right? We talked about that. And so this is the configuration space of the double pendulum. It's this two-dimensional manifold, the, the torus, the donut. Um, and then if you want to talk about the velocities of... The two weights of the pendulum you can do that as well and that would be two more pieces of information and these are going to be tangent vectors to that configuration space to that donut and so the tangent space of the donut is some four-dimensional manifold yes i remember that yeah the, and the, i remember that we can talk about the donut as living in four-dimensional space right and and this isn't even just living in 4d space this is like adding more uh you're making a new manifold, not just living in a 4D space, but um, the, yeah, now you have two more pieces of information, the velocities. These are two-dimensional, right? Yes. The idea is that the pendulums are the angles plus the velocities, so it's still just four-dimensional, right? The config, or yeah, the phase space is four-dimensional, yes. Of the pendulums, it's just... Yeah. But is that a phase space? I thought the phase space was when you turn the velocities into momentum. Yes, yeah. So that's, I mean, you can call them like Lagrangian phase space and Hamiltonian phase space. You can call them both. And then the Hamiltonian phase space is when we do the cotangent bundle, which is turning those tangent vectors into to co-vectors. What do you mean tangent vectors? Yeah, think of it like um, on the surface of the torus on the manifold the donut you're at a at, on the donut you're at a point and you have a a plane that is tangent to that point okay right and all the vectors in that plane are tangent vectors so so you're saying and velocity vectors for people who are unfamiliar with tangent planes yeah the plane just brushes against that point right right yeah and all the vectors in that plane are the possible velocities of the point in that donut. All of the vectors in that plane are the possible velocities of the donut? Velocities of that point on of, the donut. Of that point on the donut. Yeah. All, yeah. But all of those velocities have to have their origin at that point, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Now, yeah, this, this cotangent bundle is a symplectic manifold. That is the cotangent bundle. 
with the momentum, with the co-vectors instead of the tangent vectors. I'm going back to the going back to the So the set of all of the momentums, right? Which are all of the just tangent vectors times mass, that is the cotangent bundle. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. it's all the tangent. I see. It's all the tangent vectors, but we turn we turn them into momentums yeah. through this cotangent, this yeah. co-vector yes. uh yeah. process. Yeah. And so they're cotangent now. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And um in this cotangent bundle, this phase space has a this natural symplectic structure. Um and again it's this non-degeneracy and this closedness. The non-degeneracy allows you to come up with a unique vector field on the configuration space given any on the donut, given any function on the donut, any smooth function on the donut. Which is and when you have a a good function and you spit out uh, like a Hamiltonian function, which is it basically tells you how things evolve in time. Like these points on the donut can then flow along the vector field, and that tells you how something moves, just like Newtonian mechanics would. Okay, so basically your your path that you take, and each point on that path you take, a vector field is just at each point on the donut you pick one tangent vector. Okay, and so a path, a flow line, along uh, this vector field is going to have, at each point on that line, the vector you chose at that point in the vector field is going to be uh, the velocity of that flow line. So when you have a vector field on this donut, and I give you a point on the donut, you can tell me exactly where it's going to be after t time. Okay, so you're saying, you're, you're, you're giving me the donut, and you're telling me, if we imagine the donut is actually some liquid, okay? Yeah. It's like flowing around, but it's like contained in this donut shape. Yeah. And you're like a little particle in that liquid. Yeah, yeah. You can say after some amount of time, you know where that particle is going to be, how that particle is going to move around that donut. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh -huh. And that is called what? What's the terminology we're using here? So, uh, vector field. A vector field will give you that. Yeah. And non-degeneracy is what we want. Because given a function, we get a vector field. That's non-degeneracy. Okay, that's all the a vector. That's all non-degeneracy is. What is the function in this case? The function will be uh, on the donut. So every point on the donut gets a number. Oh, okay. So we get. I see. So we get yeah. some function. We have some non-degenerate function, i.e., we have some function. Um, any function. The non-degeneracy is like on the manifold. Um, it's just a condition that makes it symplectic, the manifold symplectic. Basically, what should be taken from this is that symplectic manifolds satisfy specific properties with motivations from mechanics, but then symplectic manifolds become mathematically interesting on their own right later in the 1980s. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And... The important thing to think about is the the symmetry between like position and momentum. Okay. The the area you're measuring is sort of like adding up the areas given by you can kind of think about it like the square created by 
position x and momentum x, you count that up, you add it with the area created by position y and momentum y, and you add that to the area created by position z and momentum z. Okay. Yeah. So we do have factors in our momentum. You can think about it like that. Yeah, you can think about it like that. Okay. And the other thing that you should get from this first part of it is that we care a lot about, we call these things symplectomorphisms, and it's mapping one symplectic manifold either to itself or to another symplectic manifold such that the structure is unchanged. So such that the way we measure area is unchanged. So such that the area that you were talking about before is unchanged now. And that has that physical motivation from Hamiltonian mechanics. Um, but this is why we care about symplectomorphisms particularly. And it's the study of symplectic geometry is how can we distinguish between these symplectic manifolds? You know, how can one turn into the other without changing the symplectic structure on it? And in particular, the extra structure makes it uh, more rigid than topology, but yet it's not as rigid as uh, like complex geometry or kind of what we talked about last time with Riemannian geometry. Mm. And so it's this flexibility-rigidity phenomenon um, that makes it so useful in mathematics um, and makes it so interesting. So let me talk about topology for a second. That's going to be the flexible end of our spectrum. Mm -hmm. um, so topology, if you've seen any videos or read anything on it, is it's you can kind of morph things as you see fit, and you can like bend things and stretch things and wiggle them and move them all around as long as you don't tear it, right? So you can turn a coffee cup into a donut, right? Yep. And what we were talking about last time was Ramani geometry, and you can't really uh, do too much, like stretching and stuff like that. It's very, it's more rigid. You kind of like bend a piece of paper, but you can't do much more than that. Mm -hmm. And so symplectic geometry lies in between. And I think the best way to see that, so for example, this is a good example. Do you know what the Klein bottle is? I've heard of it before. Yeah. So it's... If you had, say you have a cylinder, and you want to glue the, the top of the cylinder to the bottom of the cylinder, you can picture doing it one way and getting a donut. You just bring it around and glue it together, right? Mm -hmm. But if you glue it, the, the circle on the top of the cylinder to the circle on the bottom of the cylinder, if you flip the way that you just glued it, then you get the Klein bottle. So you like bring the neck around and you bring it back through and you glue it to the bottom of the cylinder. Do you, you bring it, you kind of bring the top and you stretch it through the middle of the cylinder? Yeah, yeah. If we imagine the cylinder doesn't have a top or a bottom, it's kind of like an open top and an open bottom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so this thing is the Klein bottle. And visually, maybe you can see that we can't really have this shape in 3D space without it intersecting itself, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's got to intersect itself. Uh, so in topology, though, you can... This is called an embedding, by the way. We can't embed the Klein bottle into 3D space because it would intersect itself, and that's bad. 
but we can embed this thing topologically into 4D space because we've got more room to work with. Mm. So where it would intersect itself, we just move it a little bit in the fourth dimension and then move it back and then bring it back down uh, and connect it. Huh. And so it's not intersecting itself. And so you can embed it in 4D space, okay, topologically. So again, topology is very flexible. It's very, you can do a lot of things in it. But symplectically, you can put a symplectic structure on a, and that's why it's more rigid. You're adding structure, you're adding rules, so you can't do as much stuff. So you can put a symplectic structure on a Klein bottle. And now this Klein bottle, if you want to symplectically embed it, which means you embed it topologically, but it's got to maintain its symplectic structure, you cannot embed that in R4. You can know, so it's an example of rigidity. Oh. Where before we had flexibility, and now we have rigidity. Okay. Right? So that's a big thing. Like, that's an example, a very clear-cut example of the difference between topology and symplectic geometry. Um, another example is what really started everything in the 80s was Gromov... Uh, having his non-squeezing theorem, which is non-squeezing is a rigid thing, right? Squeezing is flexible. You can squeeze your flexible. You can't squeeze your rigid. And so what he said is that if you've got a symplectic sphere, it's a ball, a four-dimensional ball, but still just think of it like a ball, uh -huh. um, with some symplectic structure on it, a standard symplectic structure on it, and you've got a, an infinitely long cylinder, also with symplectic structure on it, okay? Mm -hmm. Let's say the radius of the ball is A, and let's say the radius of the cylinder is B. If the ball is small, right, if A is smaller than B, you can just fit the ball inside of the cylinder, okay? Uh -huh. That's an embedding. But if A is bigger than B, topologically things are fine. We can just squeeze A as much as we want, make it super thin, uh, make it really long, and put it inside of even the skinniest of cylinders. You can squeeze the ball. Really yeah. Um, but in symplectic geometry, this is actually a very rigid uh, example. Even if A is, a, is epsilon a tiny bit bigger than B, you cannot symplectically embed the ball into the cylinder. Um, so you can't squeeze it at all. Okay. Um, and so, like... Like ball packings are really important in symplectic geometry because they can squeeze in some ways, but not in the cylinder way. Weird. Yeah. You can think about it like you can sort of think about it like um, if you're pulling two ends of a balloon, you make it long and skinny, uh -huh. right? But if you push two ends of a balloon together, you kind of make it more disc-like, uh -huh. right? And that would be hard, like... Uh, you, so in, in symplectic geometry, you can only push, you can't pull. Well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. It's, like, very mysterious. Like, it's very, like, unknown how... But sure, maybe. No, I like... I like, yeah, I like uh, that's a good visual. I like you saying it's mysterious. It's not just unknown. It's mysterious. It is, yeah, yeah. It's really weird. It's, like, very weird stuff. And understanding the phenomenon helps a lot of math. And so let me give you an example... Very cool old problem. 1911 is when this open question was first posed. And it's still an open question. And um, you're solving it today. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but lots of little steps have been made. And symplectic geometry was a big 
step in the latest uh, move and latest proof, latest result in the direction of this conjecture. And it happened in 2020. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. And this was the first time symplectic geometry was used on this problem uh, in 2020. So the problem is, in a plane, you've got some closed curve, okay? So you've just got, you know, you start at a point, and you squiggle around, you, you know, doodle around, and then you come back to the point. And you don't cross over yourself anywhere. Gotcha. You've okay. got a loop of some sort. Yeah, a loop. Yeah. And the conjecture, it's called the square peg problem. All we require is that this thing is uh, continuous, and the conjecture is that you can find four points on that curve that uh, are the vertices of a square. And it is an unsolved problem. Oh, what? And that is the conjecture. Is that you can find a square on any closed loop uh, that's continuous. And so one way to make this a bit easier, and one way people have gotten results, is relaxing the con continuity criterion and making it smooth. Making it a smooth curve. Mm -hmm. So a continuous curve, you could have lots of angles and jagged things happening. But um, if you require your curve to be smooth, it's what it sounds like. It looks very smooth. Yeah. But you can use symplectic geometry in this. And you can use lots of different tools. Symplectic geometry showed that you can find a square on any smooth curve, closed curve. Ah, even better. You can find any aspect, any proportion of rectangle. Whoa. Any, any. Yeah. And before symplectic geometry was used you could find about a third of the types of rectangles. Whoa, now you can find all the rectangles. Now you can find all the rectangles. Nice. We still haven't covered continuous yet. One result in continuous, uh, in the continuous side, is that you can find one rectangle. We don't know if you can find a square, but you can always find a rectangle. Now, I guess this is Proof Corner. We're getting into Proof Corner territory. Proof Corner! Yeah. We've got to get some more jingle to play before Proof yeah. Corner. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, we do need a soundboard of many sounds. Yeah. Well, that's in post-production. Yeah, po yeah, we'll fix it in post. So, let me see if I can prove this in a, in a way that you could see with a blindfold on. Uh-huh. Okay. Finding a rectangle in the curve I think two things and then I think you'll get the proof nice okay so first thing let's think about what it means to be a rectangle okay so you can think about it as four vertices on this curve right but think about the diagonals of the rectangle okay okay they're gonna be the same length and they're going to have the same midpoint. Yeah, they're going to they're have the same length, and they're, they're going to intersect at the midpoints. Yes, at the, their respective midpoints. Right. So if we can find that, we found a rectangle of the given angle. And we have a requirement on the angle that these two diagonals make with each other. Oh, what are you saying about the angle? The... So that angle is going to tell, like, we're looking for a very specific... We're looking for a rectangle uh, that's like five by three. And so in a five by three rectangle, the diagonals are going to make a specific angle with each other. Gotcha. 
So we're wanting to find that specific angle as well. And so what we can do uh, when we talk about the different lines we can have drawing uh, between two points on the curve, the total possibility for all these lines that you can make on this loop is a Mobius strip. The possible... Oh boy. Yeah. So you're saying... What, what, are you, what are you doing right now? Yeah. Okay. So, the, the set of possible lines that you can... Between any two points on the loop can be viewed as a Mobius strip. And I'll try and explain this and make some sense out of it. Okay, so you're saying, okay, so you're saying, imagine taking all the possible lines, right? So we take any point on our on our closed curve and yeah. connect it to any other point yeah. on our closed curve. Yeah. And take all the possible combinations yep. of those. Okay, yeah. sure. And that set of all those possibilities is a Mobius strip. Whoa. Yeah, it's super cool. And um, let me see if I can explain it. And I was trying to think of the best way to explain this without seeing it. <laughs> um, all right, so Mobius Strip. Let me just put you on the Mobius Strip, and I'll give you some description of what it's like to be on the Mobius Strip, and then we'll see that the, the description is the same when we're talking about lines on the... I'm an ant again. Back, yes. Back yeah. on my favorite place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so... Channel the ant. Yeah. So the Mobius Strip, you've got a boundary of the Mobius Strip, okay? And it's like the edge of the Strip, okay? Now... Think about you start at a point and you go forward uh, perpendicular to the edge and you reach the other side of the Mobius strip. You reach the other edge. I thought there was only one side of the Mobius strip. It is. The other is, is a misnomer. <laughs> so but you reach the edge again. You walk around the Mobius strip until you reach the beginning. To where you started. Uh, not the beginning. Well, I want to say... Um, you're perpendicular. You walk in the direction perpendicular to the edge. So think about the strip uh -huh. in front of you. And I, I'm thinking about it like a road. Like I'm, I can walk along the Mobius strip. I'm an ant and I'm yeah. walking along the yeah, road. Yeah, think about it like a road. I can either walk down the road oh. and, and keep on going You're walking forever. across the road. I'm walking across the road, though. Yeah, yes. not down the road. I'm not walking forever down the road. I'm just right. walking across the road. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so you start on the boundary... You end on the boundary, right? Yep. And you walked in that direction. Then next iteration, you move a little bit to the right. And you start on the boundary and you end on the boundary. Yep. And then you keep going. Start on the boundary, end on the boundary. And then eventually, right, you keep moving right a little bit and doing this thing every time. And then eventually, okay, what's going to happen? You're going on the opposite route of what you did before. Yes. You're going to reach uh, a point where you start where you first stopped, and then end where you first started, right? So you've switched the direction in which you're, you're walking from boundary to boundary, right? Yeah. Okay, so that's the description of the, the Mobius strip. You do something, you go from boundary to boundary in some direction, and you move a little bit, and you keep doing it, and you're kind of tracing out the Mobius strip as you do this, and then eventually... You get back to the first thing you did. You do it again, but you do it backwards. Yeah, because now you're on the other side. Right. You're like on the other side of the road. Yeah. And so now let's think about the lines on the curve. 
I think I know, might know where this is going. Keep going. Okay. okay. So, um, first thing you do is we got to know what the boundary is. Okay. And the boundary is going to be any line, I'm doing air quotes that you can't see, but any <laughs> line between a point and itself. Okay. Okay. So, this boundary is a loop and it goes around the loop, right? So, you're saying from the ant walking from one edge of the Mobius strip to another is the same as just some line where we have some fixed point, right? Yeah, maybe not. On the, we have our loop, right? Yeah. We have some fixed point on the loop. We say the ant walking across the road is the same as uh, that point and uh, another point on the loop and the line between those two. Mm, not quite. Not quite. Okay. What am I missing? Okay. Because that won't get us all of the stuff. But hear me out. Yep. We start on a point. Let's let's call all our points uh, on the path 0 to 2 pi. Okay. Okay. So let's say you're starting on 0. You're on the loop. On the loop, yes. And you see pi over on the other side. Sure. Okay. And you're starting on zero, and there's a line zero to zero, and yep. that's on our boundary, okay? And then what you do is you send an ant to the right and an ant to the left at the same speed so that and they reach pi at the same time. And at each uh, moment in time, there is a line between the two ants that are the lines that we care about. Gotcha. Right? Uh, and so then we reach the point pi pi. Right, the line from pi to pi, which is also on the boundary. Mm -hmm. Right, so we've traced out a bunch of lines, right, uh, and we're going from boundary to boundary. Gotcha. And so this is like the ant going from on the Mobius strip, going from edge to edge across the road. Across the road. I see. So, so you send out. So the, the one ant walking across the road is the same as the two ants walking around and arriving on the other side yes. of the movie strip at the same time. Yes, and it's tracing out a bunch of lines that we care about. Yeah, the lines that we're trying to talk about. Gotcha. And then the next thing, you move over a little bit to the right, and now we're at like 0 0.1, um, and we're trying to get to uh, pi plus 0 0.1. And we do the same thing, and all these lines are different. And now these ants trace out completely different lines than what we did before. Gotcha. Which is like on the Mobius strip, walking that line right next to where we started. And so I can conclude yeah. then that once we keep going all the way around and once we eventually hit pi yeah. and we send the ants out, yes. we're finding all the lines but in reverse. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes. So the set of lines on this uh, loop is the Mobius strip. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's cool. It is cool, isn't it? Yeah. All right, now, uh, next coolest thing, okay, so we've got the Mobius strip, the set of these lines, okay, and we want to put some conditions on them. We want to find the lines that intersect themselves in their midpoints and have a specific angle, right, and have the same distance. Yeah. Um, and the way we do that is we basically make some functions and they send the points on the loops to 
Mm, what's the best way to say this? Oh, it's so satisfying once it's... Okay. Um, we want two lines, right, that satisfy some important conditions. Yep. Okay. So since we're talking about two lines, we're going to have two Mobius strips. Okay, because the set of all lines is a Mobius strip. So when we pick one line, we're uh, picking a point on one Mobius strip. And when we pick a second line, we're picking a point on the second Mobius strip. Gotcha. Because a line corresponds to a specific point on the Mobius strip. Yes. Gotcha. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I see yeah. that. And so what's cool is now we embed these Mobius strips into a space and the embedding that we choose we choose this embedding so that and it's constructed very specifically to satisfy those conditions of the midpoint the distance and the angle if those two mobius strips intersect each other okay okay and you can think of one mobius strip being kind of a rotation of the other and that being the angle condition Okay. Okay. Now this is the crazy part. Okay. Uh, based on this embedding, the boundaries of the Mobius strip are going to go to the same spot. And we care about intersections of the other points. And this is a symplectic embedding into four-dimensional space because of the conditions that we want to satisfy. And now the crazy thing is that when you glue two Mobius strips together along their boundary, you get the Klein bottle. Okay. Oh. And if you remember what we said earlier, you cannot symplectically embed the Klein bottle into 4D space without it intersecting itself. Oh, what? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, so this whole thing... And so the intersection it gives you the rectangle that you want. That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. What a, what a, what a bearing of me. How, how you came back around. Yeah, yeah. Very well done. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that so, cool? That is very cool. Yeah. You know, I'm believing you. This whole idea of how you're saying we're gluing two Mobius strips together, <laughs> that makes a Klein bottle in four Okay, yeah, sure. I'm going to have to, I'm gonna have to show you that uh, visually, but we'll, that'll we'll, be later. Yeah. We'll stick that in the show notes if we figure out how to do <laughs> yeah. show notes. Okay. <laughs> nice. nice. Yeah, so we're, so we're gluing them together and like sticking them in 4D space. And therefore, since it forms a Klein bottle, it must intersect, intersect itself in this special way. Because we're gluing it together in a special yeah. way. Yeah. So therefore, it must be a rectangle. Yeah, and it's the rigidity of symplectic geometry that allows you to do this. Wow. Yeah. 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 Go. So it's a great subject, and I love studying. Wow. Yeah. And that, that's the introduction. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>